I wonder if you've ever received an unexpected gift, something that you were given that surprised you, even shocked you. The house that we live in is an unexpected gift that we've received. We didn't expect to get it. We applied for this house, but we were surprised that we were approved to live there. See, we knew that lots of people would want this house. It's in a good location, Palmerston, and we couldn't even get to the inspection. But thanks to God and to Elizabeth, who went to the inspection for us, we got this house, we got the place, an unexpected blessing. It's actually the first time as a family that we've lived in a house. Now, it's no palace or anything, but to us it feels a bit like it. We lived in Newtown in Sydney before we came to Canberra and we're in a sort of tiny two-bedroom unit there that the kids were kind of crammed into one room. All Our bedroom furniture only just kind of fit into our room. I remember getting up in the night all the time and running into stuff because there was nowhere to move. Uh, in the laundry, you could only turn basically Uh, You couldn't move around in the laundry. It was only functional to have one person at a time in the kitchen. How many times did I smack my head on um, on the shower frame? A million times. But we got space now. And a little bit of a backyard. I had to get a lawnmower. I've even got a study. And hide and seek has gone to a new level with our kids. Our house is a wonderful blessing from God and it came to us unexpectedly. Well, justification, our big word that ends in shun today, is a little bit like our house. It's a little bit like our house. The house of justification, if you like, is an unexpected blessing. It's an incredible gift to us in Jesus, but it's so much bigger And it's so much better, so much more unexpected and surprising. See, it's a miracle that we can even get through the front door of this house, let alone walk around in it and take in the wonder of it. But is this your experience of justification? An unexpected gift that you've received? A blessing that you actually enjoy? Or is it just a big word? you're not even sure what it means? Or is it just an abstract concept that has little to do with your everyday life? What's justification for you? Is it more like the house you've only seen from the outside? And from the outside, it doesn't look that impressive at all. Well, today I want us to see the incredible gift that justification is to us who are in Jesus. But you'll only know the incredible gift that it is if you've managed to grasp hold of the keys. And there's two keys that I want to look at this morning with us. And the keys that unlock the two locks on this door. See, without the keys to open the door, you won't know the wonderful blessing that justification is and what waits for us inside. You won't be able to take in the wonder as you walk around the house and enjoy this wonderful gift from God. Well, the first key that unlocks the door of justification 
is the righteousness of God. And it comes to us in Romans as part of a contrast here in chapter 3. God's righteousness is contrasted with our unrighteousness. And it's against the backdrop of our unrighteousness that Paul changes tack in his argument in Romans 3, 21. He says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. You see, in this paragraph in Romans, God's righteousness is what it's all about. You can't really miss it. Have a look. You don't have to be able to read all that on the screen, but have a look there. It's in verse 21, it's in verse 22. Then it's down in verse 25 and 26. The righteousness of God that Paul is highlighting for us. But there's more. There's a similar word, it comes from the same word family, the word to justify. And that comes up twice in verse 24 and verse 26. See, these words, righteousness and to justify, they're law court words. They come from the court. But before we jump into the law court, we're going to jump into Microsoft Word. Now, on Microsoft Word, you can justify text. Yeah, you justify text on Microsoft Word. And when you justify text, it conforms to a standard, the standard that you've set on the ruler. And all the text lines up. And so you can see on one side there, you've got the justified text. It all lines up. But then on the other document I've got there, it's unjustified. It just wayward, willy-nilly, everywhere. It's not, it doesn't conform to a standard at all. Now, to be justified in God's court, if we take this concept to be justified, to conform to a standard, and we take it into the moral realm, into the moral space, into the law court, what do we find? We find that to be justified means to be found in line with the standard of the court. And to be justified in God's court, you must conform to His standard. And if you conform to God's standard, you're declared righteous, in the right before Him, innocent of any charge. But what is it that declares us righteous? It's God's righteousness. It's God's righteousness. The first key that unlocks the door of justification. See, it's God's righteousness that brings us in line with His standard, not our righteousness. This is shocking. It's surprising. It's unexpected. See, we live in a world where we're used to justifying ourselves. We justify our decisions. We justify our beliefs. We justify our failures and all kinds of other things. But up until Romans 3 verse 20, what's the big point of Romans been in a nutshell? We can't justify ourselves before God. That's been the point. None of us have this thing called righteousness. None of us meet God's standard. We can't produce the key that opens the door of justification. But, 
But, and it's a big but here in verse 21, the righteousness of God has been revealed. And as we'll see, it's a righteousness that deals with our unrighteousness. Now, if you haven't grasped hold of this key, maybe you haven't understood how much you need it to unlock the door. Well, Paul addresses this kind of person in Romans chapter 2. And he's the kind of person that justifies himself. How does he justify himself? By judging others. See, he fails to see his own guilt, but he's so quickly to see the guilt of others. And he judges them. See, Paul's making an example of such a person. But why? Why? Well, the reason why is because he's putting a finger on something that we all have a problem with. All of us. All of us judge, don't we? We judge what people say, how they look, how they speak or what they say. We judge what people do, what they don't do, even how they do it. We judge the performance of our politicians. We judge how people drive. We pass judgment on anyone for everything. And do you know what this tells us? What this tells us is that righteousness really matters to us. Justice really matters to us. Whenever we passionately judge others, whatever standard we use, whether it's fair or not, we're witnessing to the fact that we care about justice. You know, every now and then someone will just speed past me when I'm driving in the car. And I get really annoyed. How dare they get to where they're going faster than me by doing the wrong thing? I want justice. And I always love it when they're sort of slowed down in traffic and they're not going to get to that place as quickly as they were hoping. Or they get stuck at a red light and I end up next to them again. See, it's justice. I love it. Now, do I, do you, do we apply the same standards to ourselves, though, as we do to others? No. But God will. And Paul wants to drive this point home. And so in chapter 3, verse 9 to 20, he paints this courtroom scene. And in this courtroom, it's not just any courtroom, this is the divine courtroom, Paul's the prosecutor at this stage in human history, at this stage in salvation history. And who's in the dock? Humanity is in the dock. And Paul charges in verse 9 that all humanity, everyone, is under sin. There's no exceptions. Everyone's in the same boat. And to close his case, he reads out the summary charge sheet. You know, this is him closing his case, and he says in verse 10, from verse 10, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, there is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's how he wraps up the case, just about. There's more. But do you hear the consistent drumbeat? No one. Not even one. No one. No one. All. Not even one. 
Well, he keeps going. He continues with the evidence. And he, he points to sins of action, the things we do against God. But notice the sins of speech. Verse 13. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Paul's continuing quoting the prophets of old who poured God's, who spoke God's indictment against his people. And, but why, sin, why sins of speech? Why focus on people's words? Well, it's because our words convict us all, don't they? You know, you might be able to say you've never murdered someone. You don't have blood on your hands. But which one of us can say that our words are full of kindness? We lie with words, we gossip with words, we're crude with words, we tear down with words. This is about you and I. Every one of us stands accused in this courtroom. And in the very next verse, I won't read it out, but in the very next verse, all are declared guilty. With the weight of evidence brought against humanity, not one person can speak. Notice that? Not one person can speak in defence. John Calvin wrote that the accused, without saying a word, awaits condemnation. That's the picture here in this divine courtroom. Guilty humanity before God the judge, waiting for the inevitable punishment to be handed down. See, to grasp the first key to unlock the door of justification, why have I spent so much time highlighting this? Why does Paul do it? See, to grasp this key, we must personally take ourselves to the judgment seat of God. We must be convicted of our guilt and our shame before God. See, this is a, it's a difficult thing to accept our guilt and our shame in, in this day and age. The day and age where you can only ever be affirmed and you can only ever affirm someone. See, God's not like the teacher who, when they write their reports, can't say anything but words of affirmation regardless of what the kid's been like. Because of our sin, God is against us. We're not right with Him. What are we? We're wrong with Him. But now we've done a full circle. We're back where we started, verse 21. The big but, the first key to the door. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. The amazing blessing of justification, the blessing that's so unexpected, so surprising, shocking even, is this. What God demands of us, righteousness, He provides for us. Even though we are sinners and God is righteous, even though we can't do anything to save ourselves, God has done everything, everything. Our, right, our unrighteousness has a history, doesn't it? Our minds replay things. Why did I ever say that? How could I ever have done that? There might be that one sin that still plagues you, 
the thing you couldn't possibly be forgiven for, surely. Our unrighteousness has a history, but so does God's righteousness. So does God's righteousness. In Jesus, God declares us innocent. But how does that work? How is that even fair? How can God declare that I've met his righteous standard when tomorrow I'm just going to go out and sin again? How can he do this and still be righteous himself? See, we hate it when judges let criminals off lightly, don't we? How can the murderer only get a few years jail, we say? What's wrong with the justice system, we say? So if God just lets us off and says, just believe in Jesus, isn't God even worse than one of those weak judges? If we're sinners who deserve his judgment, how can he just declare us innocent? The answer is the cross. The cross. Because it's at the cross that God's justice and his mercy come together. Verse 24. And in this verse we get some uh, words that end in shun. Lots of them. Three, I think. Uh, All are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a propitiation. See, in our Bible translations, it might say sacrifice of atonement, but the big word there that ends in shun is propitiation, God's anger turned away. See, God presented Christ as a propitiation through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. See, in the cross, you see God's justice because sin is punished. And you see his mercy because he forgives us and declares us to be innocent on the basis of Jesus taking the punishment. And that can only happen because Jesus took our sin on himself and gave us his righteousness. That's imputation, as we heard before. See, God doesn't just give us a get-out-of-jail-free card. He doesn't just turn a blind eye to sin as if it doesn't matter. He presents Jesus, the righteous one, to bear the just judgment of sin. Jesus' sacrificial death demonstrates that God's justification of sinners is just. What a wonderful and unexpected gift. The righteousness of God in Jesus the gift that declares us right with God in the divine courtroom, the first key that unlocks the door of justification. But how do we receive this gift of righteousness? How do we receive it? It's through faith. This is the second key that unlocks the door of justification. Righteousness through faith. And we'll be looking at this one a little bit more quickly it comes to us as, another, as part of another contrast. See, the first contrast was between our unrighteousness and God's righteousness. The second contrast is between the law and faith. It's all the way through Romans 3 here in the second part of it. It's apart from the law that the righteousness of God has been made known. A person is justified... Through faith, 
not works. We can't achieve righteousness by our performance. We can only receive it based on God's performance. These are two totally different approaches to being right with God, aren't they? Receiving, not achieving. Trusting, not performing. Given everything we've seen, it's obvious, isn't it? Yet we still fumble to find this key. We all know we can't meet God's standard, but there's still the feeling that we have that we don't measure up and that we need to measure up. And then there's the despair that can set in that we don't. And so we fall back into the trap of trying to justify ourselves. Because that's what we do with each other, and so that's what we can do with God. But our works can only ever be a response to our salvation. They don't play any role in winning us that salvation. Faith, reliance, trust in Jesus is what justifies us. But isn't faith itself a work? The answer is no. It's a gift from God. See, faith isn't something that we access by looking within ourselves, trying to find something that we can, we can offer to God. So if you feel like that your faith is very weak, if there's times where you wonder whether you've even got faith at all, you won't find a stronger faith by looking inside. What will you find there? You'll just find more insecurities. You'll just find more fears you'll just find more doubts. See, you'll only find a stronger faith by looking away from yourself to Christ, to the cross, because nothing within us is sufficient. That's what we've been, been hearing here in Romans. Jesus is our righteousness. Throw yourself on Him. Trust in Him. Well, now that we've grasped the keys that open the door of justification, we can walk around the house and we can take in the wonders of it. And the three wonders of justification that I want us to look at briefly now, to take in, to bring this all home for us, are that all are invited, boasting is excluded, and finally total assurance. I think these are three of the wonders of justification. Now, the first wonder is all are invited. And it's in verse 22 that you see that. Is that the right verse? No, it's not. It's all right. It's in verse 22 that you see that. The righteousness of God is given through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. See, because justification is a free gift, because it's by God's grace, because it's, what Jesus has, because, from, because it's through what Jesus has done, anyone can open the door. There's no catches. There's no fine print. There's no restricted access to this blessing if we'll just believe in Jesus. Isn't this amazing? Isn't this truly amazing? We live in a world full of restrictions. And these restrictions are based on who or what you are. 
There's Israelis and Palestinians. There's the rich and poor. There's weak and strong. There's black and white, men and women, slaves and free. All these distinctions. And depending on which side you fall on these distinctions determines the access that we enjoy to all the good stuff in life. Safety, healthcare, voting rights, all this kind of stuff. That's the brutal reality of life in a sinful world. But Paul takes the massive division of his day, the religious one, the ethnic one, the Jew-Gentile distinction, and he says when it comes to the greatest blessing you can ever know, there's no distinction. Because all have sinned and fall short or lack the glory of God. Because, we've made, because all of us have made the choice to choose the world's glory over God's glory, because there's no distinction when it comes to our sin, as we've seen, there's also no distinction when it comes to the blessing of justification by faith. It's for all. Now, it would be foolish of us to think that we couldn't bring the distinctions, these distinctions into our gatherings and only associate with some rather than all. But this first wonder of justification that all are invited pushes us to transcend boundaries together and not to just associate with some in our gatherings of church. This is the first wonder of justification. All are invited. Do we reflect that as a church? I think in lots of ways we do. But I'm sure that we can be better at understanding this truth in the way that we live together. Well, the second wonder of justification is found in verse 27. It's kind of like Paul's one of Paul's conclusions, based on what he's just said, he says, where then is boasting? It is excluded. See, boasting is shut out of the house. Pride, that deep problem that we, we as a human race bring to the table, pride, the thing, that, the thing that you see in big noting yourself, has no place. See, it's not the proud person who lifts themselves up that's justified. It's the humble person that lowers themselves. And I think this is captured beautifully in the story that Jesus tells about the tax collector and the Pharisee. Think about these two people. They both come to the temple, but the Pharisee, what does he, what does he do? Judge, justifying himself by judging others, he, he, he thanks God that he's not like everyone else. Okay? He boasts about who he is. He's not a robber, an evildoer, all these things. What does the tax collector do in that story, if you know it? All he says is, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's all he says. And who's the one that goes home justified in that story? It's the tax collector. It's the sinner. See, there's no room for boasting. And this is a wonder because it subverts the way our world operates. See, it's hard to see how you can get anywhere in our world without boasting about who you are, your achievements, where you've come from, whatever it is. But God just turns all this on its head and says, no, in his kingdom, in 
salvation. There is nothing that we bring to the table. There's nothing that we have to boast in. You see, God accomplishes our salvation without our help, believe it or not. There's nothing we can boast in. It'd be like the person rescued from drowning, getting to the beach with the lifeguard and and boasting in how well he held on to the board or something that saved him. There's no room for boasting at all. The second wonder of justification is boasting is excluded. Now the third wonder that I want to finish on, the third wonder of justification is total assurance. See, it's only when you've grasped the second key, and obviously the first, it's only when you know that it's through faith that you're right with God that you can have assurance of salvation. Because if there's any sense that it's on the basis of what you do, you can never be sure that you've done enough. Justification by faith means total confidence, means that you can have total confidence in God's love for you. You don't need to fear failure or let it cripple you in this life. Why? Because your assurance is based on what Jesus has done. See, we can all live with a certain amount of fear of failure. We can worry about letting ourselves or others down. And we do stuff up. We mess things up all the time. We wish that we could go back and do things differently. But we need not be debilitated by our failures. We can live with a great freedom knowing that we are justified. You see, this is not an abstract concept at all. It's not just a lofty kind of truth that means nothing in our day-to-day lives. Justification by faith goes to the heart of the Christian life. If your faith is in Jesus, how well you're going today doesn't change your standing before God. If your faith is in Jesus, how you measure up by other people's standards or even your own doesn't change how God sees you. At the end of the day, it's not what I think of you or what you think of me. It's not whether you've been given your boss's tick of approval and it's not whether you've lived up to the expectations of your friends. It's not even whether you've measured up to your own standards. In the only courtroom that really matters, the divine courtroom, we're declared righteous on the basis of what Jesus has done. 